Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. Forgive my voice. Uh, a little something is uh, in my throat. But in any event, I am William Lester, Professor of Chemistry and Chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Dr. Leon Letterman, this year's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush where he opened a thriving private practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily, Charles, and now a few words about Dr. Letterman. Leon Letterman is internationally renowned for his research on neutrinos, ghost-like particles that pass through everything in the universe, and on subatomic particles known as quarks. He was awarded the National Medal of Science in 1965 and the Wolf Prize in Physics in 1982 for discovering the bottom quark, which establishes the existence of a third generation of quarks. In 1988, Letterman was co-winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics with Melvin Schwartz and Jack Steinberger for his discovery of the muon neutrino, proving that there are at least two families of neutrinos. His research has provided major advances in the understanding of weak interactions, one of the fundamental nuclear forces. In addition to his work as a researcher, Letterman is also a leading proponent of science and math education at the high school and college level. He founded the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, IMSA, in 1986, and has served as resident scholar since 1998. IMSA is an internationally recognized educational institution for developing talent and stimulating excellence in teaching and learning in mathematics, science, and technology. Letterman is also an outspoken advocate for the Physics First movement, which seeks to rearrange the current high school science curriculum so that physics precedes chemistry and biology. Dr. Letterman received his master's in 1948 and his Ph.D. in 1951 from Columbia University. In 1963, he proposed the idea that eventually became the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, where he served as director from 1979 to 1989, and is now director emeritus. He previously served as the Eugene Higgins Professor at Columbia and as the Frank L. Salzberger Professor of Physics at the University of Chicago before becoming the Pritzker Professor of Physics at the Illinois Institute of Technology in 1992. Letterman is a founding member of the High Energy Physics Advisory Panel of the United States Department of Energy and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He is also a past president of AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It is during my service on the AAAS board that I first met Leon and encountered his magnetic personality. 
Please join me in welcoming Dr. Leon Letterman. Thank you very much. That was a, a really good introduction. Could you do it again? <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's great to be at Berkeley. I haven't been here for some years. Great to see many, many old friends. I'm delighted uh, to be here and only uh, sorry that uh, <clears throat> I haven't prepared the most spectacular uh, presentation in, in world history. Uh, but uh, I thought I would uh, <clears throat> talk today about, uh, about something I've been working at for some time, uh, and that is on science education. <clears throat> I started getting involved, well, I started getting involved in education as a professor at Columbia, where teaching was considered a very serious uh, obligation of the faculty something I enjoyed doing. And then uh, something curious happened. I went to uh, Fermilab as, a, uh, as an administrator and uh, found myself uh, uh, at ill at ease because I wasn't teaching anymore. I'd do funny things like catch some postdoc in the corridor and pin him against the wall and teach him something. Uh, eventually, a group of postdocs uh, called for a meeting with me and tried to figure out what was wrong. And eventually, they got it that I'm not teaching and that's a bad thing to do suddenly. And so that started a series of uh, Fermilab activity, educational activities, Saturday morning physics uh, for hundreds of uh, high school kids that came on Saturday to listen and um, things like that and ultimately the Illinois Math Science Academy uh, which I'm very proud of. It's uh, just won a major award by the Intel uh, Foundation as one of the best high schools in the United States in the teaching of math and science. Uh, that's good stuff. And uh, so uh, I thought I would regale you today with some of my efforts in education. And we'll try to use all this modern stuff. What I asked for was, do you have uh, at Berkeley a, a, a slide projector? <laughs> and I got a blank. <laughs> now, usually when I ask that, they say, oh, yeah, we have one. It's, it's in the closet on the third floor. So I suggest that here, but <laughs> there was no third floor, no closet, so. But we, we have, a, we have a, a, a good effort, and um, I hope that uh, you'll be able to see some of these things. The, 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 I have to r recognize from this introduction that uh, fame is an important ingredient in being a physicist, especially um, with awards and medals. But I was... <clears throat> Uh, this il was illustrated this by being on a crowded train coming out of Chicago one day, and it stopped at the uh, this uh, institute for uh, mentally handicapped patients. Uh, uh, the train stopped, and the nurse got on the train with a clipboard and 
a bunch of patients and she organized them. And uh, as uh, very crowded, she counted them, one, two, three, four, and she looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, I'm Leon Letterman. I have a Nobel Prize in physics and I'm director of Fermi Lab. She says, yeah, five, six. <laughs> So here's uh, this thing. I hope we'll, we'll get it going. Uh, a scientist looks at educa science education, and uh, I'm very well aware that education is a complex phenomenon, and we all work at it. Most of us who've been in academia, we work at it hard. I think a lot of us, especially in the teaching of physics, are aware of difficulties and so on. And so uh, a lot of this that I'm going to tell you is experience. Um, my point of view is that of an experimental particle physicist who gradually uh, and then hopelessly became immersed in the educational process. And I've been now at it full time for well over 10 years with uh, mixed results. Uh, first of all, I worry a lot. I worry about the, uh, the whole gamut of educational uh, things from pre-K, which is now very important, especially around here, where, uh, where Scientists in the Crib has become a textbook for many of us, uh, and it came out of Berkeley, to uh, all the way to grade way up in the college graduates and worry about the teachers, the poor kids left out of some of the advantages, the gifted kids, are we taking care of them, the college science dropouts, the ninth grade biology, which is my pet peeve, science illiterate college graduates, um, where uh, for too many colleges uh, it's still, uh, I forgot the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, one semester of rocks for jocks or whatever it is that's considered to be a, a, a proper course. I worry about global warming, the Dow Jones, all kinds of things. But most of them not terribly relevant. Uh, this is something you may not be able to read, but uh, I just want to say we live in a time of escalating global crises. Problems so complex interdependent, far-reaching, and resistant to traditional modes of thinking and problem-solving. They seem to render us impotent. The short list is the economy. All of you here, especially in California, know about it. Uh, joblessness that goes with it. The healthcare system still struggling in, in the Congress. The problems of global climate change. The wars we have. There's enough here to uh, keep many, many uh, busy. Yes, and then there is the, the, the competition, there's the growth and power of China and India and Brazil. But there is also an emerging realization that scientific, economic, socio-political, and environmental futures are inextricably linked, causing us to reevaluate policies, I hope, and redesign strategies. So what do we do about STEM education? STEM, of course, you all know, is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It's interesting that the 
engineers have gotten into this nickname twice. And maybe that they deserve it. Science, technology, education, and mathematics education. Where we now train our students to think in decidedly different ways. We have to. Since clearly the old ways of teaching have failed. Einstein said something like um, the um, thinking that created our seemingly intractable problems will not be able to solve them. And so when we're talking about education and we have a recognition that goes back uh, certainly to 1983 but probably long before that, uh, what we must do to have our students open to creatively generate new knowledge, new questions, new ideas, and globally collaborate to wisely improve the human condition, to have them think in decidingly different ways. Clearly, we must teach in decidingly different ways. So there's an enormous burden we have on our educational system, which is very difficult to implement, as anybody who's worked in education will assure you. So 21st century is a different century. It's a knowledge and information-based society which will produce new opportunities, new challenges, and all dimensions of our life. And there are three certainties. Change is inevitable. Complete coverage of some subject is impossible. And obsolescence is unavoidable. I've been told that, uh, that uh, three years is about the uh, lasting uh, uh, period for uh, electrical engineering. It's not that you have to go back to school, but the things you've learned in your four years at electrical engineering um, become obsolete very quickly. And so continuous study is essential. New technologies, new discoveries, new media, new social structures, new possibilities for quality of life make lifelong learning uh, not only a uh, Hansi slogan, but essential, so that humans can think, create, learn, and collaborate forever. The divided lifetime, once upon a time, you learn for 20 years or so, and then for the rest of you apply your life, you apply that knowledge. That clearly does not work anymore. Lifelong learning becomes not a slogan, but a necessity. So how are we doing? Well, there's a widely held, well-documented realization that a nation is slipping dangerously in its ability to maintain a robust, innovative, industrial, and technological society. Leadership qualities of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, which have made us prosperous, are rapidly being overtaken. Cries of alarm are now being sounded by leaders in business, economics, even the Congress and the White House. The huge, and we've never been, I think, more fortunately poised to make progress in a dramatic way with this White House. The huge gap in essential scientific grasp between the U.S. public and the 21st century requirements is a major object, obstacle to the reforms we need. A vigorous technological nation must have cultural and social values to sustain the qualities that underlie progress, that venerate education, that respect rationality. A national commission, which is something we often seek to um, uh, make dramatic changes in our system, but can only begin a process which must be long-term. 
yet our commissions proliferate and uh, I have had some experience with these. So why do our schools fail? Well, there's a lot of reasons and many of you know these reasons. These are well-known reasons. Teacher training, teacher morale, lack of continuous professional development on a part of teachers, inadequate teacher evaluation. In Chicago, the uh, number of teachers rated as unsatisfactory is something like 0.2%, which is clearly nonsense. Teachers are not rewarded for being good teachers or for teaching more demanding subjects. And conversely, uh, difficulty in handling poor teachers is a major problem we have outdated and largely irrelevant curriculum. And I want to talk some more about that. Uh, dysfunctional school management system. If you think about the nation and schools, there's uh, 50 states, there are 16,000, I think, school districts. Uh, uh, then you have the, the, the various committed organizations, the unions, the PTA, uh, the book publishers, many other uh, organizations who um, seek sustenance, profit, and so on from the school system. Poverty, lack of preschool preparation, low parental education, motivations, and so on. Not nearly enough parental choice. For example, charter schools, suburbs, where do you live? Social promotions, problems, retention in grade, summer schools, inability to use beautiful techno educational technology that exists but often is just not used. Uh, the third international math and science study has been uh, widely advertised and probably many of you are somewhat familiar with how, how we do. Our fourth graders actually are not so bad. Uh, they, they are among the leading uh, component of our educational system. By eighth grade uh, our students do slightly above average, but by 12th grade, there are only uh, two countries uh, that we're better than, Cyprus and South Africa. The picture that emerges from these data, uh, as uh, uh, expressed by Bill Schmidt from uh, University of, uh, Michigan State University, is a curriculum that lacks focus, coherence, and rigor. National Association for Educational Progress assessments are in agreement. Only 20% of U.S. seniors meet the definition of proficiency in science. In 1983, a committee of 10 convened as a national commission to design a curriculum for science, establish the sequence biology, chemistry, physics as um, uh, clearly alphabetically correct for high schools, uh, but in the year 2008, this is still the sequence being used in some huge fraction, well over 90% of our high schools, in spite of profound revolutions in our knowledge of physics and chemistry and biology. How do you get that to change? Uh, our high school curricula are over 100 years old, and they were established in 1890-something, and at least 70 years out of date. So we need, obviously, a sensible science sequence, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a sequence which 
uh, a major change in which one um, studies science uh, in the following sequence in which in ninth grade, instead of biology as it is today, you study physics. And in 10th grade, you study chemistry. And in 11th grade, you study biology. And that sequence uh, has a lot of other effects that, that you have to do when you change the sequence in the way of coordinating and correlating and doing something. There have been a lot of studies, enormous number of studies. Here's the Glenn Commission report. Report to the nation from the National Commission on Mathematics and Science Teaching. I've got a lot of these. We have, it's an amazing amount of literature. There's uh, no time to waste. You can tell from that, you don't have to read these reports, you just read the titles. No time to waste. Vital role of college university leaders in improving science and math education. There's uh, the huge uh, interest on the part of uh, industry. Uh, you know about Bill Gates with the huge sums of money that the Gates Foundation is putting into the schools and, and uh, you have similar activities from the major industries, Intel, Motorola, IBM. The Business Roundtable is a very effective group. Uh, more recently, Norman Augustine uh, led a uh, study which produced a very um, important report entitled Rising Above the Gathering Storm. And somewhere, some of that material is percolating around in the Congress. I also strongly recommend, for those of you interested, to read President Obama's talk to the National Academy of Sciences, where, just to quote, I am here today to set this goal. We will devote more than 3% of our GDP to research and development and improve education in math and science. It represents the largest commitment to science innovation in American history. Uh, in response to Sputnik, President Eisenhower signed legislation, if you'll remember, to create NASA and to invest in technology, science, and math education from grade school to graduate school. And Mr. Obama said, today I am announcing a renewed commitment to education in math and science. American students will move from the middle to the top of the pack uh, in science and math over the next decade. And so... With that, uh, scientists, engineers, educators, like supermen and superwomen, remove their lab coats, drop their slide rules. Uh, you don't know what a slide rule is. It's a piece of wood. Yeah. Uh, drop their slide rules, close their education tomes, and they get involved. The battle is for the hearts and minds of the citizens of the nation enlist the population in this complex set of issues that connect scientific thinking and capabilities. It's a war on ignorance. We do seem to like wars, so we decided that maybe if we have a war on ignorance that we'll take away from the other guys who want wars on almost everything else. The battlegrounds of the schools, museums, the cinema, the TV, the newspapers, what is being tested is a commitment to rationality. So here's the war, war on ignorance, and uh, I must say that a, an important component in this war are the business leaders, the Gateses and the, uh, Craig Barretts and Lou Gerstners and Google and YouTube and so on. 
governors, congressmen, engineers, even lawyers. Is that a misprint? Why not? And then, after a lot of this, lots of reports. Well, in 2007, uh, my partner, Shirley Malcolm, who was the head of uh, uh, education at the AAAS, the American Association of Advancement of Science, and I co-chaired a national commission uh, mandated to fix 21st century STEM education. So we read reports, lots of reports. The reports were amazing. We went back to a report in 1983 called The Nation at Risk, which was beautiful, filled with military metaphors, like we've created a unilateral educational disarmament. Really, I wish I had thought of that. Uh, eloquent uh, reports, lots of reports, and we discovered a secret room in Washington. Uh, it's called the National Commission Storage Vault. All the reports are there. <laughs> lots of them. Uh, and we read these reports, and the reports were all sensible. They, they told us what we have to do. They talked about teachers. They talked about schools. They talked about um, curriculum. They, they essentially said everything. The problem was that nothing was ever implemented. The failure was a failure to implement. And uh, that's when, uh, in our particular uh, uh, experience, when we tried to implement, uh, we found that the implementation problem was, uh, was difficult. So let me go to uh, my own feeling for how the subject works. Out in, out in, the, in the research field, this uh, kind of pyramid makes sense, that the base of the pyramid is mathematics, and if you like, computer science. And uh, it's the base because mathematicians are very happy to be mathematicians and not talk to anybody else. Although if somebody talks to them, they're not unhappy about it. Uh, physics and astronomy sit on mathematics and computer science because physics and astronomy require mathematics. Chemistry, these are the research fields now, not education necessarily. But chemistry sits on physics and astronomy because physics provides the basis for uh, what goes on in chemistry. There isn't anything, any chemical phenomenon that I know of uh, or any chemical process that if you say, why does that happen, you're not forced to go to physics for an explanation. And then sitting on chemistry is modern molecular biology. And then there, that's simplification. There are a lot of hyphenated subjects and so on. But this is the hierarchy that exists in the sciences, that mathematics plays a crucial role for physics, and uh, mathematics and physics support chemistry, and mathematics, physics, and chemistry support biology. And uh, so you would argue that in education, there ought to be some, some parallel. The existence of the hierarchy and the relationship of the sciences is, a, I think, a profound cognitive statement. Physics as a foundational science plays a unique role, and that therefore the sequence clearly ought to be physics and then chemistry and then biology, rather than the current 
uh, trend in over 90% of high schools still, uh, biology, chemistry, physics. When you reorder the course, you do a lot of other things. You change the way you teach the course because when you're teaching physics in ninth grade, these are ninth graders, they're, uh, you're lucky if they're taking uh, Algebra 1 concurrently. Someday, Algebra 1 will be a seventh grade course, but it isn't there yet. And so this physics has to be conceptual uh, without... <clears throat> Uh, problem solving or major problem solving but it could be a very solid important base for chemistry and a base to explain what a science is because very very little in the way of uh, the process of science goes on in the schools and that's an important issue most of the children that are learning science in the high schools will not be scientists but they will be voters, and they'll be citizens, and they'll be important that they have a grasp of how science works. <clears throat> the year of physics gives students a good sense of how science works, especially when we tell stories. Chemistry broadens the study of matter and energy, drawing explanations from physics at the same time, deepening the student's grasp of concepts, more stories. Biology provides a more cognitive challenge, building on the chemistry and physics that undergirds, undergirds biological order. Modern biology is DNA. What's DNA? DNA is a molecule. What's a molecule? It's made of atoms. So if you talk about DNA in ninth grade, you've got to wait for physics to find out what an atom is. That just doesn't make any sense. And teaching biology without mentioning DNA is another thing that seems uh, too, too curious. So physics first is what it's called. Uh, that was my biggest mistake in launching this program uh, was not calling it biology on top. It was dumb to call it physics first because people are very suspicious, especially a physicist, probably justifiably so. So we propose that the disciplinary study of science begins with physics. This is eighth or ninth grade, age 14 or 15, even though the students may have only just begun the study of algebra. Conceptual physics, this was actually invented by... Um, um, I forgot his name, but uh, a long time ago... Uh, as a uh, as a way of teaching physics to uh, children who just uh, were impossible mathematically, but uh, it's changed a lot now. It emphasizes uh, conceptual grasp, does not emphasize much mathematics, minimum of mathematics. But that doesn't mean you can't teach a good course in physics that way. The belief of some people that you cannot teach physics without Calculus is just absolutely incorrect. The intimate dance of physics and mathematics can be learned even with the simplest of equations. I mean, after all, if you say a car is going 50 miles an hour, where will it be in three hours? Uh, and you write down x equals vt, you've done something fantastic. You've written down a prediction. Wouldn't Wall Street like to have such an equation? Well, uh, the first year of physics not only introduces the concept of a science with its broad uh, foundations and implications, but it also prepares stu students for the study of chemistry, which follows physics. 
Let me just comment, I don't know if you can see this, that physics first is not a new idea. When we started looking into this, we found um, probably 50 or so high schools that had been doing physics first for 5, 10, 15 years. <clears throat> uh, and uh, uh, so that it isn't, it isn't a brand new idea. And most of the schools that have uh, adopted physics first a long time ago are very happy with it. They find lots of advantages to it. Uh, the schools that have been talked into changing, which I know more about, uh, give, give us a very uh, positive reinforcement to the idea because when it's done with the enthusiasm of teachers uh, and the support of the administration and so on, you find that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the students who take uh, conceptual physics do better in chemistry, they do better in biology, they begin to be interested in elective courses. Many schools have reported growth by factors of three to five in the enrollment in uh, elective science courses. They found uh, women taking uh, advanced placement physics, which I always thought was illegal, but it not illegal, it's in fact a good thing that happens. Uh, so, so that there's, there is a lot of positive uh, happenings in, in the subject. Oh yeah, here's a, uh, I found a, uh, my grandson's biology book, uh, which had ninth grade, ninth grade biology. And there was a sentence in it, the transmission of sodium and potassium positive ions through cell membranes is crucial to the functioning of nerve impulses. This is a ninth grade biology book. This one sentence has the essential physics and chemistry concepts applied to a vital element of biology. In ninth grade biology, students have to memorize a meaningless description of nerve impulses. That's the problem with ninth grade biology. So much of it is memorization. So, physics first uh, is the thing I'm trying to sell today. Uh, if you look at textbooks, high school biology textbooks, uh, they actually review physics and chemistry topics in the first chapters or two uh, before looking at real biology. Chemistry textbooks review physics topics, uh, atomic structure, relevant forces, definitions, before looking at chemical reactions. Physics seems to have no other science prerequisites. The natural conclusion is to begin the disciplinary study of science with physics suitably modified to fit the development status of ninth grade students. It's not simply a switch of physics and biology courses. Ninth grade physics is most commonly conceptual. It stresses a grasp of concepts as opposed to problem solving. I know that many of my own graduate students can solve all the problems in the textbooks, but when it comes to uh, concept, conceptual grasp, they're, they're a lot weaker. As more and more schools advance algebra studies, more and more math can be included in the conceptual physics part. Biology for students with a year of chemistry and physics is a very different subject. 
and uh, Roger Bybee, who's run the, uh, a, an institute in Colorado, uh, largely for biology teachers, has given many workshops in which the biology teachers were told, okay, now your students have had a year of physics and a year of chemistry. What do you do in biology? And it's clearly a more richer and more uh, ex exciting uh, way of teaching the science. So we get uh, we got a lot of news. New York Times featured this several times. A push to reorder science puts puts physics first. Uh, the the various communities, uh, school communities, are all discussing this. This is now well known, and little by little, we're getting schools to adopt uh, physics in ninth grade. Uh, I think, at last count, there were some. 2,000, over 2,000 public high schools that reordered the sequence to physics, chemistry, biology. 2,000 sounds like a large number, but since there are 20, 25,000 high schools, we have a ways to go. It's a very slow process. Uh, one of the things you, one of the implications of this is not only do you make a change in the sequence, but you physics, chemistry, biology, and math teachers ought to give the given time. I think this is a crucial issue in changing our schools. Uh, one of the major things teachers complain about is a lack of time. If you ask the math teacher, how often do you talk to the physics teacher? They say, well, we pass each other in the hall on our way to classes, and that's not the way to do it. So we're pushing very hard for at least, you know, a four or five hours per week uh, epoch of collegial professional development where teachers uh, talk to one another, uh, design a strategy for how new subjects are brought in and so on. And then why not bring in occasionally the history teachers and art teachers and literature teachers and maybe this is a way to close the two cultures gap. Here I recommend uh, E.O. Wilson's book Consilience which is a, uh, a very uh, ambitious idea of the unity of knowledge uh, which he uh, espouses. The goal for all students is science as a way of thinking, designed to generate comfort with new ideas, behaviors, situations, characteristic of our times. You can have numerous pedagogical excursions to real-world problems that make uh, inner and transdisciplinary approaches, new educational technology. Here, Bob Tinker has been a partner of mine in some of these developments. Make visualizations easy and the approach to abstraction possible in much earlier grades. Wide adaption of the inverse order must have waves that go way down to K-8 and up to higher grades too. So what we're really talking about when we talk about physics first is really uh, this revolution we need. And there's more, even more important, and that is the thing I quickly alluded to, that when you design a 21st century high school curriculum, you have to ask, what do we want them, all of them to remember in 10 years? They will have forgotten equations, F equals MA or E equals MC squared. 
in the high school science for all students, each discipline must sacrifice some time uh, in the content of the course to the process of science. How does science work? How messy is the process of discovery? The need for open-mindedness, skepticism, some sense of history, science as a humanistic activity, storytelling, what is a scientist, what are they like, social and economic results. Science is the only universal culture. It's the same anywhere. Science is a way of thinking and knowing. So these are the things one hopes one can eventually produce, and now let me try to get to some quick conclusions here. A virtue of the PCB sequence is that the physics learned in year one is used in chemistry in year two, whereas the biology in ninth grade is ignored from then on, unless there's a very, very unusual situation. Both physics and chemistry are used in biology, thus deepening the conceptual grasp of how science works. Teachers of each of these core disciplines should have some knowledge of the others. So uh, I think I'm, I'm making a case, uh, and uh, it's, um, uh, there's a, a huge amount of data. Unfortunately, it's very hard to get high schools to track students when they leave the high school. But uh, we have uh, huge amounts of anecdotal data about the benefits of changing to physics first, and I have some of these things here. I'm just going to skip over them and be delighted to, to uh, review with you uh, some, of the, some of the facts that they work. As I pointed out, uh, the process of changing is a very slow process. So we've been working on this for, say, 10 years. We've got 2,000 schools, but we have many, many school districts, and the number of uh, times that our group of people go out and talk to uh, teacher meetings and so on uh, is pretty impressive. So there, there is, this process is known. Uh, it's working slowly. How we get to accelerate it is a good, good problem. Uh, I do have, uh, uh, finally, just two slides that may have some interest to some of you. The problem uh, of atoms. Atom is a very abstract concept. Uh, and many parents are worried that, they're, that if you introduce atoms in ninth grade, the atom uh, is, is a, a difficult concept. For example, how many atoms are there in the dot at the end of a sentence? Well, uh, it's a, a million trillion atoms. How do you grasp that? So I tell a story about Aristotle. Aristotle had a ur- common urge, and so he peed into the Aegean Sea, and in 2,000 years, the water got all mixed up. And, uh, and so the, the nice calculation is how much of Aristotle is in this glass of water, and anybody who does the calculation will find there are about 1,000 atoms. Actually, we published this uh, some years ago, and the President of the United States at that time (laughs) found uh, an error. And this was in the newspapers. He he, he pointed out that we we made a mistake of a zero or two. So 
anyway, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, questions and comments, please come forward. Dr. Letterman has agreed to respond to them. Well, I'd like to point out that the, uh, there's the STEM technologies, which includes engineering. So if we're going to make a hierarchy above biology, we really should have something, uh, human ecology, which goes out into engineering and which has a lot of uh, sub-work uh, tech, uh, for technicians, because that's really the only way that the U.S. is going to be competitive in the world of several billion manual workers is to have everything very highly automated and so that most of the jobs here have some aspect of being a technician uh, working with uh, material production here. So um, this would apply to me a rather different structure where we don't have the standard lecture format and, and um, quite the same goals, but really goals of working with teams to define how to make useful things and get them to succeed in the real world. No comment. I think that's a, a good statement. I know that uh, uh, engineers have been working hard, especially uh, I know about the work done in um, uh, Boston, uh, where the, I think they're leading the, the pack in trying to introduce the, induce engineering at earlier grades. That, uh, the, the only the problem you always have is what do you, what do you put in place? You know, if you're going to add something, you've got to subtract something. But I think that is a, a valid comment. Hi. So you've convinced me that we should have physics first. What, um, what advice or suggestions or things would you say that we should do as you know, future academics or, or president academics, faculty, teachers? What should we do? I didn't hear everything, but you're, you're asking about advice to others who would foolishly go off and try to change the <laughs> curriculum. I mean, if, if we agree with what you're saying, what yeah. would you, what's the next step? What, what, what advice or suggestions do you have for us to do to help education well, for, you know, for high school, like you're describing? Uh, I, I think the, the problem always is getting, getting, getting the public involved on your side. I mean, in a way, it's not so hard to, to, uh, to find the academics and the, the thoughtful teachers to say, yes, this makes sense, or, and administrators too. But until I think we can get the, you know, uh, my, my fantasy on this is, is very simply stated, if I can only get Oprah Winfrey to listen... So uh, she hasn't answered my telephone calls, but someday she will. And uh, if, uh, what you need, I think, is, a, is a, a popular force that says, look, we're not doing well in education. We've got to do better, and this is, uh, this is one way to, to do it. Now, we have a very strong Washington uh, group that... Uh, uh, is poised, I think, to make important changes. But uh, so I'm I'm speaking on my pre pre Obama momentum. But um, we're hopeful that maybe with um, 
with more uh, ability to spend time on this particular issue, uh, uh, we'll get a lot more help from Washington. See, along those lines, I was wondering uh, what you saw in terms of Arne Duncan's uh, leadership for the public schools of the city of Chicago. Do you see things emanating from that leadership in terms of our national directions? Yes, there were there were there's some conversations. Uh, um, uh, this present secretary of education is a good guy, and uh, I think he's in principle we've had conversations supportive. Uh, when I was uh, when uh, President Obama was my uh, senator, we had some fantastic conversations too, at least in which uh, uh, I was awed by his, his uh, belief in the power of science and education. Uh, and he's written papers on this subject. It's not something you have to tell him. He knows it. The big problem now we have is, is the complexities of our present... Uh, that's why I started out with uh, uh, the economy and... Uh, uh, environment. So many problems are piling up in Washington, and yet every one of these problems has a science and education aspect to it. So we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, be too fearful to push education and science as hard as we can, because that's the right key in all of these issues. You know, how do we fix global warming? Well, you know that it's science. And all of these other things are science. So I think we have to be emboldened to say this is, this is the right um, venue for helping in the, in this, in the present, uh, under present circumstances. We've got to work at it. Hi. So uh, you mentioned uh, engineering in Boston, and I actually was working at the Museum of Science on the high school approach to engineering for ninth graders. So we were oh. sort of your competitor in some ways to physics first, trying to do sort of an engineering first. And as we started down the curriculum development road, we were sort of trying to mesh with you guys and say, well, let's try and get kids to understand atoms and molecules. That's a good goal. But as we got into it and we started doing more research, we sort of came to a, more of a, a macroscopic thermodynamics approach, right? So flow models, which are bigger in engineering than a traditional atomic molecular interpretation, the kinetic molecular theory. And <clears throat> one of the things that we found that is not well addressed by physics, whether in ninth grade or you know, later, is, and it sounds esoteric, is entropy or the general running down of things. And we talk about heat, but heat as a form of energy. So I guess I have two questions. One, as you moved physics to be first and have this idea of let's teach it so that kids can take chemistry and focus on the atom, have you, have you sort of not focused on reformulating things enough to have a better understanding of thermodynamics as a foundation for the other subjects? And uh, I don't remember the second question. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I don't have any comment on that. I think you have. A, a, I'd have to look in great detail. You're making very positive suggestions, and uh, I'm sure that somewhere in this, I mean, there's a there's a email 
clutch of 30 or 40 teachers that communicate regularly uh, with ideas like uh, how to how to fix it better and so on. And your your statement is a is a good one. If you write it up in a little more detail, I'll circulate it among this crowd, and maybe something good will come out of the, you know, and specifically out of the uh, uh, reformulation of curriculum. But it, it, what you make is sounds plausible to me. In this new reformulation, you talk a lot about commissions, and I hear now that the Governors Association is planning to get together and rewrite basically science standards. And it, it's a question as to how much they're going to involve AAAS and their benchmarks, et cetera, et cetera. But ideas change very slowly and difficult, uh, difficultly, if that's a word, in this field. And so how do you see that happening? How do you see new ideas and really fundamental reformulations happening? And are you optimistic about that? Yeah. Well, of course, you're always optimistic. Otherwise, you don't do anything. But uh, what you're touching on is, is, in fact, the proposal that Shirley Malcolm and I tried to sell uh, uh, in this National Commission idea, that we do need, uh, you know, during Sputnik, uh, uh, we didn't have the kinds of things that were needed to combat the, the menace of uh, Soviet progress. So Eisenhower created NASA and so on. Right now, we don't have a mechanism for implementing and for smoothing the, the fact that we have uh, 50 states and each, you know, 50 governors. And the states are beginning to do things in the way, which is interesting. Uh, they're, uh, I think they're called P20... Uh, commissions and uh, they if in fact as the examples I've seen are correct more and more businessmen get involved in this the businessmen getting involved in in the uh, state manipulations is positive because they're around longer than the governors and we've got to get a mechanism whereby states can talk to each other so that a a New Jersey teacher moving to Missouri doesn't have to learn a new language. So there's a lot we have to do in the way of the whole system. You know, I waved. Uh, we've got to improve the system and make it more coherent. We can't give up local control. That politically is out of the question, in my view. But we can uh, have a strategy, a national strategy for standards, a national strategy for many things that that go into the whole educational mix. That's what we need to do. And that that's part of the kind of question you asked, that we need, an, we need to reorganize this chaotic, incoherent system we have. Many of, uh, many students in high school, including those at Cal right now, did not take physics last. They didn't take it second, and they didn't take it first. They just never took physics. Uh, is it your hope that if physics is put first, more, more students will take it? Because we have a big problem that people just don't take science, period. They're not required to take it. They'll take some. Maybe they're required to take one science class. Uh, but, but for the most part, uh, in my class, which is the, the f physics for non-majors, about half the students have never taken physics. 
That's a, that's a, that's a separate problem from what order we yeah. asked him. What are your comments yeah. on that? Well, when the city of San Diego some time ago uh, decided to adopt physics first, and 9,000 students registered for physics in ninth grade, uh, this was five years ago or so, they went through a huge effort to train. A big problem is training. There are not enough physics teachers. They had to train uh, physical science teachers and they, biology teachers to pitch in. But somehow they managed this and uh, it went on for three or four years successfully. They were really getting it now. The teachers were getting more enthusiastic about it. A lot of it has to do with not forcing teachers, but having teachers being part of, the, part of this uh, revolution in a positive way. And so then in came the parents. And the parents said, what? Uh, you're teaching physics to my ninth grader? It, it, it's going to destroy his mind or, or her mind. <laughs> you know, the par and parents had two, two opposite points of view. One is... Uh, you're watering down the physics by giving it in ninth grade. It, it should, we should wait for the calculus. And the other was, it's too much for my children. Both sets of parents objected for different reasons. And um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the school board that had been so progressive at, in San Diego uh, got fired, and they had to give up the problem, even though when you really looked at it, they were really making very, very good progress. Kids were learning, teachers were enthusiastic. You, you said 9,000 signed up, but I don't know whether that's 20% or 80% of the students. It was all, the whole, the whole school, everybody registered for ninth grade physics. Please join me in thanking Dr. Letterman for a wonderful presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.